thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, we thank you that you are our provision. You are our strength. You are the one that we trust in. And we just ask you to guide and keep us as we go forward. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Second, uh, second. First Kings chapter 6. We're going to continue looking at the building of the temple that Solomon built. And we've uh, been looking at the fact that he built a building that was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 40 cubits uh, for the holy place and 20 for the 20 by 20. And so we looked at that. He, he covered it with gold. He put palm, palm trees engraved into it and cherubim engraved into it and, and uh, flowers engraved into it, tulips particularly. You know, and we looked at this. You know, the palm tree is a is a symbol of heaven and victory and peace. Uh, when Jesus did the triumphant entry, they put palm leaves in front of him uh, as he came in, which is a picture of victory and, and peace. So Solomon was using pictures, just not the same pictures that were used in the tabernacle, uh, but he's making some changes in it. And he made the cherubim, if you remember, that were going to cover the mercy seat with a 10-cubit wingspan and uh, they covered the mercy seat with their wings, and they touched from wall to wall. So we're going to start in verse 31. And for the opening of the oracle, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the side post were of a fifth part of the wall, and the two doors were also of olive wood, and he carved upon them carvings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and overlaid them with gold and spread gold upon the cherubim and upon the palm trees, so also made he for the door of the temple post of olive tree, a fourth part of the wall. And two doors were of fir trees, and two leaves of the one tree were folding, and the two leaves of the other door were folding. And he carved thereon cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and covered them with gold, fitting upon the carved wood work. And he built the inner court with three rows of hewed stone and three rows and, and a row of cedar beams. So we want to just look at this. He's continuing to build this, this fabulous temple, which is one of the great works of the ancient world. And he's going to build this temple and cover everything with gold. And gold is a symbol for deity. Uh, and and uh, so it is the right, right covering for everything. But he's doing things so much different. He says... For the entering of the oracle, and remember we said oracle is the holy of holies. All right, so the oracle is the holy of holies, so he's got this 60-foot-long building, and it's divided into two rooms in that building. The first 40 cubits, or 60 feet, is the holy place, and the back 20 cubits, or 30 feet, is the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is going to be in the mercy seat. And so he's he builds... For the oracle, doors of olive wood and lintel and side posts, which were a fifth part of the wall. So 20% of his wall is this door that he's building. So it's a pretty good-sized door. And in the tabernacle, if you remember, it had a veil that covered it. In the Herod's temple, they're going to go back to a veil that, cover, that divides the Holy of Holies because it says when Jesus died, the veil tore from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom to the top. Literally, God tore the veil that separated the, the holy place from the holy of holies. And so 
in Solomon's temple, he builds a door. Now, we don't know whether it was ever used, if they took the, the regular curtain and put it in front of there, but he builds a door. I don't know if he doesn't know the scriptures that well or what he's doing, uh, because nobody's supposed to look into the Holy of Holies. And the, the priest was to slip in and, and bring the, the blood in and then come back out, and nobody was to be looking in and trying to see God and all this other stuff. And so Solomon's building a door, pretty good-sized door. It takes up one-fifth of the, of the two-cubit wall, which means it's covering four cubits, or six-foot door. To go into the door into the Holy of Holies, which they're calling the Oracle in, this, in the King James Version. And it says the doors were made out of olive wood, and olive represents Israel in the scriptures. Uh, the scriptures tell us that we as Gentile Christians and believers are engrafted into the olive tree. And you know, very interesting when they, when they talk to you is I've heard them say that the olive tree is the only one that takes the engrafted branch into it and changes what the branch gives. If you engraft an orange branch into an apple tree, you will still get oranges on that branch. They'll taste, like, they'll taste like apples because they're getting apple nutrients. If you put a pear tree into an apple branch, you'll get pears, but they'll have a strange flavor. The olive tree, from everything I've been told, literally changes the wood to be what it is. So we're engrafted into Israel so that we become heirs of God in Israel. And it's kind of an interesting, interesting point uh, that that is the only tree that literally changes what's engrafted into it. Every other one produced. We had a tree when we lived in Virginia that I think it had four different trees engrafted into it. We had pears and apricots and apples and one other, one other thing. And I think it was an apple tree. So every, a pear, no, it was a pear tree and everything tasted like pear. You know, no matter what it was, it looked like the other thing and, and tasted a little bit like what it's supposed to, but it, they all had... They all had pear flavor to them. Uh, so it was, it was interesting, but here Israel re is represented by the olive tree in Scripture. And so he, he's building it out of the olive wood. He covers it, and then he carves in the cherubim and the palm trees and the olives leaves. And so he's in, engraving these things into him so that there's texture in that. And we talked about last week how when you covered everything with gold, there needed to be some texture someplace because everything was one color. There was no other color but gold in the temple. And if you've got to think about it, the Ark of the, Ark of the Covenant is gold, the Mercy Seat is gold, <laughs> the Menorah is gold, the, the Altar of Incense is gold, uh, the Altar of Showbread is gold. Uh, he's going to make utensils all of gold. Everything in this temple is gold. <laughs> well, there's no, there's no real light either unless God's, God's Shekinah glory is there, so, uh, which it would intensify his Shekinah glory. When God stepped in, the reflection of all that gold would be blinding. Uh, so, but you've got to remember there's only some little windows that he builds in for, for the light. So there, that's the only light outside of the menorah in the Holy of Holies. And, the, and he's put gold everywhere, and it says he also made a, go a door for the temple post of olives and a fourth part of the wall. So the entrance into the, t into the temple part is a fourth of that, which means it is a huge door also. It's 25% it's of, the, 
of that uh, dwarf. So he's making some big doors uh, out there. And he makes those doors of two leaves. So they're folding doors that enter into the temple. And they're big ones. He's not doing anything small. The height of this temple is, is uh, 20 cubits or 30 feet. So it's kind of a very odd-shaped building. It's kind of out of proportion. And on those doors, he also engraves them with palm trees, cherubim, <laughs> and flowers. And uh, we know that the cherubim are angels. So God's represented there. The palm trees, as we said, was representing uh, heaven and victory. And most people believe that the flowers were there for fruitfulness and the, and the beauty of nature, trying to bring in threes. Because God does everything in threes, it seems like. It, because he is, a trinity, he is the trinity. He does everything in threes. There's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've got the, the water is in the form of uh, liquid water, steam, and, and ice. We, we see threes everywhere we look. The atom itself is a, is a proton, neutron, and electron. And we see threes everywhere we look. God's structure for the family is father, mother, children. His structure for the church is Jesus, the, the pastor, and the people. He's got a system of threes everywhere, and Solomon is building in threes in his decorations. He's putting three of each decoration in, and all of his measurements work out to have nice, nice measurements to represent all that. So, so the palm trees, heaven, and victory, and the olive trees? The olive trees represent uh, Israel. Now, when I say things represent, that doesn't mean everywhere you read it, it does. But when you, when you see those things, you can go, what are, is, there some, is there something special being said? In this case, I think he is trying to say something special in his way. <laughs> he carved these in, and he covered them with gold. <laughs> and then he built in the inner court with three rows of huge stones and rows of cedar beams. So you've got the temple. Then he creates a wall around the temple out of three rows of stone. You know, he's got stone and gold everywhere and cedar trees everywhere. And remember, he is getting his cedar from Hiram entire. And they're coming down, and he, and he is sending 10,000 Israelites for a month at a time up there to chop down trees. They're taking it down to the, to, the, to the Mediterranean. They're floating it down to the nearest port for, for Jerusalem. Then they've got to drag them uphill from, the, from, from uh, the Mediterranean up to Jerusalem to build this temple. Meanwhile, he's got his own people out uh, cutting up rocks all around them. And they're smoothing out the rocks, as we talked about before, outside the temple. It said that there was not the sound of a hammer anywhere in the temple area which means they, they were very precise in their working because they put it all together and it all fit together. Where was it they were supposed to put hewn stones? Hewn stones? Yeah. In the altar. Okay. In the oh, altar. Okay. Well, the rest of the temple's fine. Okay. We didn't want, they, God did not want hewed stones because he did not want man's work okay. being the, the foundation of the offering. Uh, now, however, they're going to offer the, offer the offering in the, bra in the brass altar that they had to make. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of an interesting, interesting world uh, when, we, when we look at what they're doing. Uh, 
But especially with Solomon, remember, Solomon's, one of the biggest Solomon's problems is he keeps doing things his way rather than God's way. And the very first thing we saw about Solomon is he followed after the truths of his father. So he didn't even have a personal relationship with God at that particular time. And he still keeps doing things just slightly off, which is important for us to remember because sometimes we like to serve God our way. God, I'm doing all kinds of good things for you. I'm doing really good things. And God says, but it's not quite what I asked you to do. I appreciate your trying, but you're not serving. And there's always consequences for not doing things God's way. And sometimes they're serious. Sometimes they're not. Uh, 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 yeah. Aaron's two sons did things their way on the first day of the opening of the tabernacle. And God sent fire down to consume them. They became crispy crispers, crispers, uh, crispy critters as they got fired from their job. And, uh, so we look at this and say, God says, I want it done my way. And so many times we try to do things our way. And God says, no, I will not bless things done your way. They're going to be done my way or not done, not done. Which is why God uses some of the most unusual people to do things sometimes. You look around and you're going, wow, well, God, you, you're using that person? You know, of course, we can look at ourselves, God, you're using me? <laughs> me? I know me. I don't deserve to be used. <laughs> you know, and we look at it and say, and God says, yes. Why? Because it's his strength. It's all about him. If it's all about us, we're doing things for the wrong reason, and we're not going to be successful. It always has to be God being the one that's the center of everything that's going on. And so Solomon is just off. You know, he's not using all the materials that he's supposed to. They're not bringing the tabernacle. And this is partially David's fault. You know, David should have brought the tabernacle into Jerusalem and set it up. But he never did. And I can understand why, you know, you're, you're living in a beautiful suburban area and you're going to put a big tent in your, in your neighborhood. You know, they, not, there's nothing new under the sun. They had the same attitude. We don't want that big, ugly tent in our, in our backyard. Who, who's bringing that tent into, the, into, our, into our neighborhood? It's going to bring down the property values. Uh, so, but, you know, but, you know, we laugh about it, but that really, is there, that really would have been what was going on. We can't have this big tent out there. It's ugly. It's been around for 800 years. 800 years. We can't have that thing sitting, in, sitting out here. So, but we see he finally gets this built. And then in verse 37, it says, In the fourth year was the foundation of the house of the Lord laid in the month of Ziph. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, was the eighth month, which is the eighth month, was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof. And according to the fashion of it, so was he seven years in building it, actually seven and a half. But he took seven and a half years building the temple. Quite, quite a feat to, to get a building of that nature put together that fast without mechanical, you know, electronic cranes and stuff that we have that can move, move huge tons of, of, of uh, stone and everything at one time. And I don't know, they had to have some kind of cranes lift because they're putting those big, big rocks uh, 30 feet up in the air and then putting a roof on top of that. So, I mean, there had to be some form of 
lifts and cranes going on. But they're not the mechanical ones that we're used to. They would have been a whole bunch of pulleys and, and everything, and people would have had to have hauled them up by hand. And he may have had winches and everything. We don't know what technology he had, but it was a big job. And they're dragging it from all over the country. They're not bringing the raw materials and making it at the site. They're making it somewhere else so that no sound is heard inside the temple area and dragging them. And if you're familiar with Jerusalem, the Temple Mount is at the top of Jerusalem, which is on the top of a mountain. And you've got to go even higher to get to the top of, get to the mount uh, for the temple. So these guys are having to work. Uh, if you've ever tried to drag or push something uphill, imagine these rocks. <laughs> okay? And we're going to be talking about how big some of these rocks are as he, as he says, talks about uh, them later on. But they're not little rocks. They're, they're, they're ten, 10 cubits by 10 cubits. All right? These are big rocks that they're moving around trying to get out there. And they're putting three rows of these things together. These are wide walls that they're putting together. They're, they're not very, they're not easily destroyed. They're, they're designed to, to stand up to anything. And this is the building that David had designed. This one is not David, is not Solomon's design. This is the one that David made the designs for. David gave the plans to Solomon and said, God won't let me build this building, but here, you get to build my building for God. And David le built up tons of material for this. Now, it says, you know, the, when, when we read the list on it, he set aside something that would be equivalent to close to a billion dollars worth of stuff for this temple. He wanted, David really wanted to honor God with the building of this temple. And we're not sure whether Solomon's trying to honor God or honor David, or a combination of both. Uh, but he's building, he's, he's fulfilling his father's dream. And he does it quickly. Seven years, seven and a half years to build this building is a pretty quick, quick uh, job. All right, verse 7. But Solomon was building his own houses 13 years, and he finished all, of his, all, and he finished all his house. He built also the house in the, in the forest of, Lebanon, of the forest of Lebanon. The length thereof was 100 cubits, and the breadth thereof was 50 cubits, and the height was 30 cubits upon four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams upon the, upon the pillars. And it was covered with cedar from, from above the beams that lay on upon 45 pillars, 15 in a row. And there were windows of three rows, and light was against the light of three ranks. And in the, all the doors and posts were square, and the windows and the light were against the light in three ranks. So this doesn't make a whole lot of sense, so we're going to break this down. <laughs> Solomon spent seven years building God's house and 13 years building his own. Now, why? Most likely, and most scholars believe, that it took only seven years because David had laid up so much stuff in advance for this house that he didn't have to go get everything. So that when he builds his house, he's got to go and get everything. And I kind of buy that. In, I kind of buy that. There, there's also the idea that he might have had an urgency to build God's temple that he didn't have when building his house. We're building God's house. We need to get it done and get it done, you know, yesterday. 
Uh, when he's getting to his house, like, okay, I've got, I've got my rooms. I can, I can, I can live well. Or, matter of fact, I got dad's palace. I don't need mine right away, so I'll just move in when it's, whenever they finally get it done. Either or both answers are, are valid. Uh, I do tend to believe that it, a lot of it was that he didn't have to go get a lot of the stuff. Uh, the stuff David had laid, laid up there was, was fine. Um, he's not covering his house with, with uh, gold. Um, he just leaves it in cedar, which isn't a bad deal either. Um, he says he built his house of the forest of Lebanon and other cedar trees. The length of his house was 100 cubits. Now remember, the temple is only 60 cubits. <laughs> so he's building a house that's 150 feet long. And it's 50 cubits wide. The temple is only 40 cubits, so that's 75 feet wide. And he makes it, the, he makes it uh, 30, 30 cubits tall, so that he's building it 45 feet tall. It's a pretty big building. The temple was what? The temple is uh, 60 cubits or 90 feet long, uh, 40 cubits, uh, 20 cubits wide, which is 30 feet wide. And if I recall, I can't remember if it was 20 feet tall or 30, 30 feet, the same height. His house is the same height as the temple. A hundred cub, hundred cubits, or 150 feet, by 50 cubits, 75 feet, and 30 cubits high. So he had the same height. His building didn't stand above God's temple, <laughs> probably on purpose. <laughs> but he has a bigger building, <laughs> by by a pretty good size. I mean, his he's making his building pretty good, pretty uh, good, bigger than than God's house. Uh, but again. He's following his father's instructions on it. And I don't know why he's doing, you know, such a big house. Uh, we don't know. And it says he made four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams upon the pillars. So he makes all these rows of, of pillars and he puts cedar across the top of them, mostly for support, but it, it, may, it makes for an interesting looking place. And it was covered with cedar from a from above the beams that lay upon 45 pillars, 15 in a row. So his house has, has 30 pillars, and then the porch has 45 pillars on it. He, he's building a, a pretty good uh, building. And I can't even imagine what that was. In the middle of it, he's got all kinds of four rows, you know, four, four rows of pillars holding up his house, which is probably necessary, because uh, I don't believe they would have had the the main support beams that we would have had, so the pillars had to hold, the, hold up his, his thing because that big a house would need a pretty hefty center beam. Um, and it would have to be long because you can't make your center beam in, in a mul whole bunch of multiple pieces. Uh, we can today because we'll just bolt our metal together and put, put metal between them, but uh, a wooden house wouldn't be able to do that but the porch has 45 pillars, 15, three rows of 15. So I don't know, you know what that would have been like or what the even purpose of all of that was, and there were beams across the top of those. So he's, he's covering his porch. When they, when they talk about this porch, we really believe that this porch was more than just a porch. It wasn't open to the sky because it says later on that he built a porch for his wife. And it makes it sound like he built her a palace. So this porch is much more than just the word, what we think of a porch. I uh, would just attach this little extension onto our house and, uh, 
we sit out there and have our barbecue and, our, and sit out in the sun. That's not what these porches are when they're talking about, uh, about them. But he, uh, and we think that this porch is some kind of building, some kind of outbuilding. But it has a lot of pillars in it, a lot of, a lot of posts in it. So we look at that and he says, and there were windows in the three rows and a light. And this word for light is only used here in this verse. And they really believe that it literally means a place of seeing or window. So this light is another way of saying windows. So he places windows which let light in. And there were three rows of them, three ranks of them. Uh, so he's building windows in his porch. Now, if it was a porch like we're used to, you wouldn't need windows. So that's why we know there's some kind of building involved in this porch. Uh huh. Yeah, he's made ornate windows. Ornate windows, and they probably didn't have glass in them because we, you know, that's not glass is a relatively new, <laughs> new, new use. Uh, they would cover them with lattice work to keep things from blowing right in, and they would put curtains in or shutters in front of those so that you didn't have things, the, the wind, the, the rain blow in, uh, and they would cover them with a lattice work so that you could look out and let the light in. Song of Solomon talks a lot about those lattice windows uh, when, we cover, when we covered the Song of Solomon. Uh, and Proverbs talks a lot about the lattice. I stood by my lattice and looked out into the, into the, into the, court, into the road and saw the simple fellow being drawn in by the, by the temptress. So... Uh, so he talks a lot about these lattices that were what covered our window, covered their windows, and made their thing. So he's building his house, and it's pretty ornate. It's got pillars everywhere. They've got windows everywhere, and the windows, of course, let light in, let air in. So they were very valuable in their houses. And in those days, you didn't put a lot of windows in your houses usually. This also shows you one thing about Solomon is he feels very secure. He's putting lots of windows in his palace because you did not put windows in because that gave you a weak spot in your house. If you put a window up, it was very, very high up so that somebody couldn't get to it and, then, and because you were, it made a weak spot. And we all know that's weak spots in our houses. Our front doors and our windows are the way people can get into your house. Same thing for Solomon's day. They didn't put a lot of windows in. If you look at the old pictures, it's not like us where we put windows down a whole wall and, 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 and feel good. They'll have one window, maybe two windows in the entire house. And the only reason they had most of those was so they could let light in. Uh, and Solomon is putting windows all over the place. And then in verse 5 it says, And the doors and the post were square, and the windows and the light was against light in three ranks. So... He's building the posts square. They're not round posts. They're not round pillars. These are squared pillars. I don't know. Well, usually when I read the word pillar, I think of a round pillar, but uh, and trees are round. So they're having to to make them square. They're having to do a lot of work. They are they are planing these trees down to make them square. And so he's taking some big trees. If he's making tall pillars that are going to go up 45 feet tall, he's, he's starting with some big trees, and he's planing them down into squares <laughs> instead of just round. Because normally they just stick a round pillar up there and smooth it out. 
and he's having it planed. He's, he's building an ornate house. You know, we, in our day, we don't really think much of, of nice planed wood because that's what we buy. We go to the store and it's, it's nicely planed and smooth and everything. In that day, you did not get two by fours. You know, you went out and you could, you could make, you could have them made into two by four. You could, but that was not what you normally did. You smoothed it out enough so that you could lay it against the other, the other tree, the other part of the, the wood, and then you sealed them together. More like log cabins. You know, log cabins, they planed one side of the log so they could lay flat on each other and they put the, the wood between, the, between, the, between them and the mud between them. So we see here the ornateness of his house and the grand size of his house. Uh, I didn't actually look and see what his size of his house matches to, to today's modern houses, but a 150-foot house is a pretty long house. And a 75-foot wide house is a pretty long house. All right, so, and I didn't really look, take the time to look to see how that matches up to, to today's normal <laughs> houses for America, anyway. Uh, probably, probably at least two houses, I'm, I'm thinking. And, and he's building all kinds of windows in there that let in light. And light is important to be let in because if you don't have the light, natural light, you're going to have to burn candles. And candles create smoke and, and dingy up the house and all of that stuff. So he's able to have ventilation coming into his house and natural light. So during the daylight hours, he doesn't have to burn candles. And he's got plenty of light. Verse 6, and he made a porch. So he's making another porch. Uh, of pillars, the length thereof was 50 cubits, and the breadth of there was 30 cubits, and the porch was before them, and other pillars white and, and of thick beams were before them. Then he made a porch for the throne where he might judge, even the porch of the judgment, and it was covered with cedar from one side of the floor to the other. And his house where he dwelt had another court within the porch, which was of, the, of like work, and Solomon made also a house for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken to be his wife, like unto this porch. All of these were of costly stones, according to the measured measures of hewed stones, sawed with saws, within and without, even from the foundation unto the coping, and so on to the outside toward the great court. And the foundation was of costly stone, even great stones of ten cubits and stones of eight cubits. And above were costly stones after the measure of the hewed stones and the cedars. And the great court around was of three rows of hewed stone and a row of cedar beams, both for the inner court and of the house of the Lord and for the porch of the house. So he's using the same materials for his house as he used for the temple. This is what that last part's made. So we, we see him building himself a really big house. It has this beautiful columns and rows of pillars in front of it, uh, 45 pillars, windows in it, and he makes these square posts. And then if that wasn't enough, he makes another porch or house. In verse 6, he makes another house. This one is, is much smaller. It's only 50 cubits by 30 cubits, 75 feet by 45 feet. That's closer to the dimensions of your larger mobile homes and stuff. So his, his second house that he's building is more like a normal-sized building. 
I haven't got there. Uh, well, I read it. He then made a porch for the throne that he might judge. And porch there is a raised enclosed area or a building. The hall of judgment. Yeah. A judgment hall. So, and, uh, so he's building this, this first porch. It's, it's more like a normal-sized building. I don't, know what, I don't know what's going to be served in it because it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us what he's using all these buildings for. Uh, this might have been his kitchen for all we know. Uh, and, he's, and it's built of thick beams and pillars as well. And then he made, in verse 7, then he made a porch or another building of raised area for, a throne, for the throne where he might judge. Okay, this is the judgment hall. Uh, and this is kind of an, this, is, this particular building is unusual. Because when the kings made their palaces, they would end up in the first room in your palace when you entered into the palace was the throne room or the judgment room. The king would sit into it. People had access to the throne room. This is the place that Satan has access in heaven, to the throne of heaven so he can accuse God in the judgment seat, at the judgment uh, seat. So he goes, God, you know, your people are bad. I, you, know, you need to judge them. And so he has access. This is when it says in Job, he came to the before God. He's come into the throne room. After the throne room, you would have meeting rooms around the edges where people, special people could go. And then deeper in, you would have the private parts of the, of the palace that only the king and, and special invited guests would come into. So Solomon, by the time he gets to a third building... <laughs> is building a throne room for judgment seats. So he is building quite an elaborate palace. And it's not unusual. If you go in and you look at the history of Nebuchadnezzar and you look at his throne room and then his palace behind it and his wives' palaces and, and all these different palaces all around, you know, all around for the people to dwell in, it's not unusual for their, for their palace <laughs> to take up the entire city uh, and have city within that city and rooms and banqueting rooms and everything that people could go into and they had free movement into certain parts of it. And here's the, the type of uh, palace that Solomon is building. All right, so he builds this throne room and in another place we're described in how he has these beautiful lions and gold steps coming up into it in, in uh, Second Chronicles when we finally get there. Uh, and his throne is elaborate with gold. He sits on gold with lions, you know, lions at the base of it. And I think it was seven steps. I can't remember off the top of my head. I didn't look that one up. But he builds this beautiful throne, and that's what's sitting here in this special throne room that he's building. And we're not told how big this one is. Uh, but it is covered with cedar. I think he likes cedar. Uh, because he builds the temple with cedar and he builds everything he has with cedar. And cedar has a good smell and a good, good look. It's a good word, wood to build with. And he is building everything with cedar. And his house where he dwelt had another court within the porch, which was of like work. So we see in four buildings here, his, his palace, two porches, the throne, and the throne room and this one you know, are all out there, you know, a porch, the throne room, and this porch. And so he is building. But he's going to continue building the rest of his career. And 
Later on, he's going to start building public buildings and parks and, and places of entertainment. You know, and this is something that happens when countries get into a place where they feel at peace and at and, uh, luxury. They start building extravagant luxury and entertainment. And because they have so much entertainment and everything, they stop producing children and they start uh, dying out. And they just take it easy. Well, we're just having fun. And we hear the words we're hearing in our day and age. Well, kids just get in the way. I can't have as much fun. I can't go out. I can't go, you know, I can't go out to dinner. I can't go out to the movies. Can't go do the things I want. That's what happens all through history when they get to the place where they feel like they're at peace. We see this problem that he's building, and again, he's getting away from God. He has built his own dwelling place bigger than God's, and there has to be a reason for this. You know, because you would think, well, God only has a house that's 60 cubits by 40 cubits. I can't, uh, 20 cubits. I can't be building myself an entire city. And he's building an entire city. You know, God's house can almost fit twice into his, into his, his house. So there's a problem here. Is he really consciously doing this? Probably not. But that's how sin normally is. We start down the path without really realizing what we're doing and why we're doing it and what motivates us and all of a sudden we find ourselves deep into sin and we go how did we get here little bad decision here little bad decision here little bad decision here uh, when when i was studying orienteering which is trying to get around by a compass you're supposed to find something in the distance and walk toward that toward that thing and not be looking at your compass and trying to keep a straight path if you're looking at your compass, you end up zigzagging back and forth uh, to it. And, you know, you, you're, you're way off path. I've uh, been told that when you're uh, flying or, or going by ship, you follow your path. You, you keep on path. And if, you, and if you're off just a, just a small degree at the beginning, by the time you go hundreds of miles, that small degree of, of being off course will take you to an entirely wrong place. And this is how we are in our life sometimes. We start steering our course by our own thinking instead of God's thinking, and we just off by just a little bit. As we were talking about on Sunday, Adam and Eve standing around the tree. Now, they should have been staying as far away from that tree as possible. They should have built a great big wall around that tree so they couldn't even see the tree and stayed completely away from it, but they met Satan by the tree. You know, and too many times we play around with sin. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be tempted to do that. I can, I can hang out with the wrong crowd and, and influence them. You know, I, I will, they, they will all become Christians because I am so strong that I am not going to participate in their their activities, and I'll hang around them all my time and, and almost every time. And I'm not going to say it's every time because every once in a while you get some testimony of somebody who did, did that stupid way of evangelism and won, their, won, won the person. But, you know, the odds are against you, and it's not worth it. When I would have people tell me, well, I think God's told me that I need to marry this person and I'll get them saved. I go, you might be the exception, but I wouldn't count on it. I, I will, you, you're going to fall, probably. 
I would not bet on it because God says don't be unequally yoked. And that's not just for marriage. It really is for our friends and for our businesses and for who we hang out with. That doesn't mean we totally ignore the lost or otherwise they're not going to get saved. But they shouldn't be our best friends. They shouldn't be where we're hanging out all the time. If I'm hanging out at the bar all the time with my, with my drink, uh, drinking, drinking friends, even though I'm not drinking, I probably am going to fall. And at the very least, they're going to be looking at me and saying, what do you have that we don't have that, you know, you're here all the time. Do you have something that we don't have? And it's not the best place to be. You know, if you can do it without falling, then once in a while, maybe, okay, go hang out with them, witness. Most of the time, though, it's going to dry, drag us down. And we want to be careful. Uh, somebody that gets into business with a non-Christian, they're going to be in trouble because that non-Christian is going to want to do things the world's way, which means push the limits, if not outright break the law. And you're going to be sitting there going, no, I don't want to. I'm going to follow God. And, well, we've got to do this because this is the way business is done. You know, and we've got to be careful. Solomon keeps pushing the, pushing the edges, pushing the edges all over the place and not following God with his whole heart. God says that we are to worship him with our soul, our mind, and our strength. And in the New Testament it says, and our heart. Everything about us is supposed to serve God. You know, and we need to be able to do that. And this is what I love about Christianity. We can think and still be Christians. We can have a, the soul and the body following God and not have to abandon all of that. But most of the religions say, quit thinking and just do what, we, do what you're told. If it's not that, it's say your body is bad, one of two extremes. Your body is terrible, don't, don't do anything for your body, or you know, just do anything that your heart feels you know, leads you to. One extreme or the other, Satan doesn't care because you're, you're worshiping your body. You know, even if you're denying your body, you're worshiping your body because you're putting your body through so much struggle so that you're saying, I've got strength over it. And, and our emotions. The, the, our emotions are not bad in and of themselves, but if we try to live by our emotions, we're in trouble. Because emotions lie to us more often than not. You know, uh, so we cannot live by our emotions. And our emotions will make a, lead us to do stupid things. You know, so we want to be careful. <laughs> Live by God's rules, his laws, his, 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 his building. Uh, so he made this porch outside his house. And then it says, he, and Solomon also made a house for, his, for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken for his wife, like unto this porch. So her house is the same size as his porch and, and of the same design, same materials. And he builds her a house. Now what the difference is between a house and a porch in this particular statement, I don't know. Uh, maybe the porch doesn't have a roof or something. I don't know because it doesn't. They, most of the most of the commentaries say that they believe that it's a building, and so I don't know. I don't know what the what the difference between the porch and the building is. It's it's one of those terms in the Hebrew that we don't know what it means. And again, remember I've said when we get to specific terms like the names of animals, the names of architectural activities and stuff, many times we don't know what they are because they're specialized terms. And we have specialized terms all over in every language. Right? When we have a fork, you know, the, the points of a fork are called tines. Now, not everybody knows that those have a name on them. All right? uh, 
So he goes, I, I, need, some more t I need you to give me some more of those four-pronged four, four tines. What are you talking about? I want the forks. <laughs> you know, and not the three-pronged one, the four-pronged one. Yeah. Uh, and you know, we have drapes and curtains and ballast and all these other things that go around it. If you're in music, there's so many musical terms that if you're not into music, you don't know all the terms and you could be going, what are, the, what are they talking about? They're, they're talking some strange language. And so oftentimes in the, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, they use words that we're just not quite sure what they are because they're not the normal everyday words that we can find in books. And this is one of those, they, they, they then define it as porch. They think it might even be a small building or an outhouse of some sort. Outlying house, not an outhouse, but an outlying house. <laughs> Hall of Pillars. So we don't know all of what this is, but he's building something. Something that is beautiful. It's got lots of pillars. <laughs> and he builds Pharaoh's daughter, his wife, a, a, a place of her own to live in, like unto, the, like unto the buildings that he's done. Now, she's the only wife that we've had mentioned so far, so I don't know if this is his first wife. Maybe it's the first one that he loved until, until the Shulamite woman in, in uh, Song of Solomon. Don't know. We don't know much about her. Well, we know there's going to be more because she's going to be the one that he builds a temple, the first temple that he builds for. Well, it is Pharaoh's daughter. Yeah, it is Pharaoh's daughter. That could be true that he's trying to, trying to do a good work for Pharaoh. Keep, you know, hey, Pharaoh, I'm treating your daughter really well. See, she's got a house. She's not living in the harem. She's got her own her own house. So that's a possibility. That is a possibility that we have here. Uh, and it says, all these were of costly or precious stones according to the measure of huge stones, sawed with saws, within and without, even when the foundation into the coping or the top of the wall. And so he is making square blocks out of these rocks. All right? That's what it said. They're sawed within and without. Normally, they would just saw the tops and the sides that line up against everything else, and then they would put plaster to smooth everything else. He is making rocks that line up, like our, like our uh, bricks and everything. They line up. He is making them so they are perfectly in line. They're not sticking out and giving things where people can climb on. He is making solid lined bricks, and he's making them of precious stones. Now, in this particular case, I don't believe they're talking about gemstones. I believe he's probably talking something along the lines of marble or something, something of an expensive type of rock. Uh, you know, it might even be sandstone, but I, don't, I think it's more precious than that. It doesn't tell us, but it says precious stones, and I don't think he's talking about diamonds and, diamonds and jade and, and those type of precious stones. Could be. Could very well be. I don't know enough about stones to know. But these are stones that are designed in a different way. So it could very well be uh, that would make it a precious stone. This is not just a stone you went out to the quarry, blew up the, blew up the quarry, and drug a bunch of stones in and stacked them, all, stacked them up. All right. These are stones that they have taken the time to use stone saws on, smooth them out so that they stack on each other, they line up within and without. So he, he, is, he is putting money into this, into this building. There's a time to say all, all they were of costly stones according to the measurement. 
measure of huge stones, yeah. So, so sawed up. And the foundation was the costly stones and great stones of 10 cubits and stones of 8 cubits. That means these stones are 15 feet long and 12 feet long. Now, I don't know if they're square because it doesn't say they're square. Yeah, you're not picking those ones up. <laughs> they're not saying they're square. All right. But they are, one of their dimensions is 15 to 12 feet long. And I don't know if they were four by four around it or what they were, but these are huge stones that he's using to build with. And it says, above these were stones and their measurements of the huge stones and cedars. And the great court about was of three rows of huge stones and three rows of cedar beams, both for the inner court and the house of the Lord and for the porch of the house. So he's using the same stones for it. So this gives you just an idea. These stones are being used in the walls of the temple, in his walls. And it says m multiple times that he's making three rows of these stones. And so I don't know if these are one foot wide, two feet wide, three feet wide, four feet wide. I don't know. But even at one feet, they're making pretty thick walls. All right? And if they're thicker, we're talking about some really big stones. And I don't think you could have a 15-foot stone that was, one, that was one foot wide and get it moved anywhere. It would be a pretty tough, tough uh, maneuver. So I don't think these are one, one, foot, one foot wide. Uh, so how big they are, we're not told. He just tells us that they're one side of them because it doesn't say they're square. So we're not going to assume that they're square. But they are long stones. And I'm not quite sure how heavy an eight, a 15-foot uh, chunk of stone would be. So this has got to be something that would be a massive work. And you wonder how they move these things in the first place. And it says he's used these in his house, in the porch, and in the temple. An eight-foot bucket of rock is about 25 times. Okay. I figured somebody would know something about it. Seems like we have somebody that, that knows this stuff. Uh, that's a lot of... That's a lot of uh, so the, the, the most it would be is 25 tons. That uh, probably wasn't 25 tons because I don't think it would have been you know, the, full, the full bucket weight, but... But still, we're talking about a lot of weight. And these are being moved by human beings. And then they're building 45-foot buildings. And I don't think that, I don't think even the eight-foot, I'm sure they got smaller and smaller as they got up, but I can't imagine trying to lift those, those rocks that high. These are huge buildings. They're opulent. He's the king, and he's going to live in the luxury of a king. And his house is bigger than God's house. And that, I think, is a problem. I, I think he should have built a bigger house for God or a smaller house for himself. But it is one of those things that's going to lead to his pride. Nebuchadnezzar has a, a prophecy given to him when he's getting proud. Don't get proud because the day you do it, you're going to lose your kingdom. And a year later, he's looking out at, at uh, Babylon saying, this is Babylon that I have created. And a voice comes in, you know, this is, this is that day. And he's made to get a mind of an animal and live like an animal for a period of, of a year. And would have, if it hadn't been for Daniel, I'm sure he would have lost his kingdom. 
but Daniel kept the kingdom for him and he was able to take his kingdom back. But it says his hair grew so long that it started to mat and look like feathers upon him. Pride. Pride is what God truly hates. It was pride that brought Lucifer down from heaven. He says, I will be like the Most High. He was not happy with the job God gave him, which was the chief angel. You know, outside of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he was, no, he was the next person in charge, and he wasn't happy with his position because he wasn't, he wasn't in God's inner circle. You know, and, he, and he rebelled and took a third of the angels. What brought Adam and Eve down? Pride. She looked at that tree, and it looked so good, and it was going to give her knowledge. And she took and ate it and gave to, gave to Adam, who, who was with her. You know, pride brings down so many people. Moses, when he struck the rock the second time, he was so angry at the people because they weren't listening to his word and, you know, and God's word that he struck the rock. And, and God says, no, you're not, you're, not going to, you're not going to go into the kingdom into the promised land. Pride. David getting pride and saying, I'm not going to go out to war like I'm supposed to. And he goes out on his roof, sees Bathsheba, and decides he is king. He can take what he wants. You know, pride brings down so many people. And whenever we start living in our pride and thinking we're better than everybody else or we're stronger than everybody else or whatever, whatever part of pride you want, you're going to fall. It's just a matter of time before you fall with pride. Solomon is setting himself up. Setting himself up in pride. You know, he's got the world coming to him to hear, his, to hear his wisdom. And getting proud. God gave it to him. He asked for it and God gave it to him. And he allows it to work into pride. And this is something we have to be so careful of that we do not get into this whole area of pride and allow pride to, to, to break us because it will. You know, if you think there's anything in your life that you're so strong in that you will not fail in it, <laughs> you're, you're in trouble because God's going to say, oh, you've got pride in that area? Let me show you. And I can, I can almost guarantee you wherever you have a great pride in, you are going to fall in that area. It is almost a given in the testimonies that people fall in the area that they think they're strongest in. Part of it is because we don't put a guard on it. Okay? I am so strong, I would never fall in God. I, you, you go take care of the rest of my life, God. I've got this, I've got this one. I, I will not fall. And you're going to fall. God is a better guard on, the, on your weakness than you are on your strength. So we need to understand that we need God covering all of our all of our areas because we're not going to get by without it. And we need to keep that in mind. Solomon hasn't gotten there yet, but it won't be long until we're going to see him falling. And we know that his fall came in little bits, little bits. We know that one of the places he's going to fall is when his, when his wife starts saying, we need temples to worship our gods. You know, you've got a temple to worship your God. I don't have a temple to worship my God. So he starts building temples for their gods. And you know that he, right at the beginning, right now, he's saying, I'll never not worship God. I'm going to follow my, the God of my father. I'm going, to, I'm going to worship in this temple that I've created. But he gets these little chinks in his pride and falls. And this is true for all of us. This is why we need people in our lives to be able to look at us and say, 
uh, you know, you're, you're making some bad decisions here. And if we don't have those people, we're going to fall. We must have somebody in our life that can speak to us bluntly and say, you know, I'm noticing some things about what's going on in, in your life that, that have bothered me and that are speaking to us in love. And we need to give permission to certain people to be able to speak that way to us. It's very important. Amen. We say, you know, if you see something, say this, you know, say something to me. Because if we think we're too proud, we're too good, we're too strong, we're too mature, we're going to find ourselves down on our face in the mud, you know, suffering the consequence for that sin. And it's a serious thing. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help protect us, keep us... Keep us humble. Keep us following you in all that we do. And keep us looking to you and help us to follow in all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.